0: In pharma, there are few issues that loom larger over the entire industry than the cost of drugs. And that issue gets all the more frustrating when considering the amount of expensive medicines that are frequently and literally flushed down the drain. Every day in hospitals across America, healthcare providers pull out vials of medicines and administer the proper dose. But because doses are typically based on a patient's weight, some amount of drug is often left behind in a vial that is now no longer sterile. What is there left to do? Nothing but throw it away. Now, with worries mounting that billions are being lost every year by this form of waste, Congress is looking for answers and solutions that could impact pharma. My name is Megan Parrish, and you're listening to Offscript, Pharma Manufacturing's podcast that goes beyond the pages of our magazine to discuss the issues that matter to the industry most. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ted Shortliff, Chair Emeritus and Adjunct Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Columbia University, to discuss his work examining this problem. Recently, Dr. Shortliff chaired a committee that studied the implications of discarded drugs for the National Academy of Sciences, which was formed to assess how much federal money is being lost to this kind of waste, and offer regulatory and policy recommendations to address the issue. One of their key findings? Rebates paid by the industry likely won't work. Although Congress has been considering legislation that would require manufacturers to pay rebates for discarded drug amounts, the committee argues that drug makers would likely then just simply adjust the pricing of their drugs to recoup those lost rebate costs, meaning that this kind of legislation would do little to lower the government's overall healthcare spend. Instead, the committee argues that the industry should strive for increasing efficiencies in the clinical trials and drug development process and consider more frequently adopting technologies such as multi-use files to reduce waste. To learn more about these proposals, I'm joined today by Dr. Ted Shortliff. Okay, great. Well, Ted, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, talk about our report and uh, let people uh, uh, know why we reached the conclusions that we did.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to start by asking you just about this topic in general. I mean, the issue of medical waste in hospitals has definitely been known about and reported on for some time. So why was this report commissioned now? Well, I think
1: both uh, CMS and the Congress had become aware that there suddenly seemed to be a lot of expense associated with a certain subset of medications. of course, these are these newer chemotherapeutic agents and immunologics uh, that are infused or injected, they come as liquids, they come in vials, and usually in uh, single dose vials, or or in many cases in single dose vials. And because the price of a single vial can be a thousand, thousands of dollars in some cases with these newer agents, and they're very effective, but also very expensive, the fact that uh, This particular kind of waste seemed to be an especially expensive one since uh, a little bit of leftover liquid in a vial looked like liquid gold and people were concerned that maybe we really need to do something to avoid throwing out this very expensive medication, uh, discouraging practices that lead to it being thrown out. Uh, And that, that was why Congress asked CMS to look at this issue in greater detail and in fact mandated that they commission a study from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and, Me- and Medicine to look at this. So the National Academies has often done these kinds of studies at the request of federal agencies, and this was one such study. It took us about 14 months.
0: Wow. Yeah. And you actually just kind of touched on this. I was wondering if you could just describe this issue broadly, the issue of waste. What kinds of drugs are we seeing um, being wasted most often?
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm a physician, I've given a lot of medications myself out of vials over the years. And by the way, the focus here is is on physician or clinician administered medication. Therefore, it's almost all relevant to part B of Medicare reimbursement rather than part D. Uh, so we're really dealing with clinicians treating patients either in hospitals or in clinics or in private practice settings, rather than uh, patients uh, self-administering these medications. So I, as a physician, would give a medication out of a glass vial or a vial that had a stopper on top that could be pierced with a needle, and occasionally would notice that you know we hadn't used it all, but that this vial was now no longer usable on anybody else. And yet, you know, when there's a relatively small cost to the whole vial, you don't have the same impression that uh, you're throwing out something of great value. So it never really rose to be a big issue until the cost of, of the vials themselves suddenly became so high. And so it's not really new that we've been uh, discarding liquid in the bottoms of vials for years, uh, decades, uh, but the cost of a vial suddenly has made this seem especially important.
0: Okay. And is this more often related to personalized medicines?
1: Well, it's largely chemotherapy uh, and cancer chemotherapy medications and the newer medications that are immunologic in their, in their function for various issues, uh, antivirals of various sorts, uh, you know, the hepatitis C medications, things like that, that are quite expensive for a full course of therapy. For a patient, but very effective in many cases.
0: And am I right in understanding that these costs and this issue of waste has increased in recent years?
1: Uh, yeah, yes. The the cost of these medications, although they are a small percentage of of actual prescribed medications, are a very high percentage of total drug cost in the country. And, and we re- I, I don't have them at the. of my tongue, but that's well reported in the study where we looked at exactly why this has become such an important issue, and it's a very large part of overall drug spend.
0: Right. Um, So when a physician takes a vial out of a medication and administers it to the patient, but then ends up having some leftovers that are thrown away, who typically bears the brunt of the cost of this waste?
1: Well, physicians are reimbursed for the cost of the vial. Patients typically pay for the vial. Uh, obviously, if it's CMS and they're on Medicare, then they're responsible for 20% unless they have supplemental insurance because the 80% is, is covered under Part B. Many of them do have supplemental insurance, but uh, to the extent that they have co-pays, deductibles, and out-of-pocket expenses associated with payment, then a portion of that, what they're paying out of their own pockets as individual patients, has gone towards the full vial and and not just to the portion that they actually received. On the other hand, uh, and this becomes important in our overall assessment of the situation, the patient got the treatment that they wanted and the reason that there was left over is because their body size was such that they didn't need the whole vial, but they got the treatment that they needed. And they usually are pretty happy that they got the treatment that they needed and are not focused on the fact that they saw a little bit left in a vial.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the role of clinical trials in this situation. Can you tell me about how the current standard design of clinical trials kind of plays into this sort of flawed system?
1: Well, the reason that's important is because many of these drugs are weight-based dosing. Okay? Obviously, if everybody got the same dose, you'd make a vial that was that size, and you'd use the whole vial, and this issue would go away. But since people are, are often uh, different body sizes and, are, and there's an assumption that they need to use weight-based dosing, that's why we end up with not needing the entire vial or sometimes having to use a portion of a second vial if the first vial isn't even big enough for a very large person. Now, if you go and you look at the, uh, you know, it's not so much the later clinical trials, but in the early stages of new drug development, there is a kind of assumption in the community that these drugs have a a narrow trade-off between efficacy and safety and toxicity. So for decades, we've we've seen studies done that assumed that they needed to determine a a weight-based dosing. And and a large percentage of these agents are administered in a weight-based way. Obviously, it raises the question, do they really all need to be weight-based dosing? And we don't think that that has been asked enough that FDA has not asked drug developers to look at that issue. And so by the time you get into your later stage trials, it's being given weight-based. And uh, the the trials, therefore, end up providing data about the drug and its utility on the assumption that it will be given in a weight-based fashion. And then the uh, FDA, of course, therefore, approves it as a weight-based medication, and we end up with this potential problem and uh, therefore one of our recommendations is this is something FDA could really ask companies to document and that is that they looked at whether or not weight based dosing was absolutely required for the agents in question and we did, we had a fair amount of briefing presentation that led us to believe that it's almost become a habit in the community to assume that these drugs are weight based and that they really could be pushing that issue much more in drug development and then subsequently in the clinical trials and that would that would help us make sure that we made vials just the right size. If in fact, more and more of these agents or new uses for these agents could be shown to be fine on a fixed dose basis. I hope that's clear. I mean, that's kind of a technical detail, I suppose, but it actually has a lot to do with why we're throwing out these medications. Uh, But I don't wanna suggest that everything could be fixed dose. The report acknowledges that some uh, weight-based or body surface area-based dosing will always be required for certain agents.
0: So, are you thinking then the FDA could ask drug developers to trial both weight-based and standard doses in clinical trials?
1: Well, uh, they may be able to document early in pharmacokinetic studies and the like uh, that a drug has to be weight-based, and in which case you would not want to do a fixed-dose clinical trial in the later stages, of uh, phase two and three trials, for example. But we do think that they need to present data, if it is weight-based, that they attempted to come up with a fixed dose and that there was valid reason for them not to use it in the clinical trials. And if there's not a valid reason, then they should do it on a fixed dose basis.
0: And I know that it's hard to generalize these kinds of things, but I'm wondering how much additional cost would this give to a drug developer if they were sort of asked to analyze whether or not a standard dose could be used instead of weight-based dosing?
1: we don't think that's a that would be a major issue in the early stages of drug development. I mean, it would not affect the, the overall trial uh, once that question had been addressed in the early stages. So this is not a major issue to have to look at in more detail. Now I, I don't want to pretend that it would be no additional mm-hmm. hassle on expense, uh, but it, it, in the grand scheme of things, we believe this would be relatively minor, and for reasons that are clear from the issue, not doing it, Even for the system as a whole, is leading to significant potential additional expense
0: currently. So it's not necessarily the kind of change that would necessarily inspire a lot of pushback from the industry, if the FDA were to make that change.
1: No, and remember, drug drug development is done in a variety of settings. Sometimes by the drug companies, sometimes in academia, when new agents are developed and, and the like. And we think all of them should be aware of this issue and be looking to address it. But I think the logic of being sure you ask this question and not just assuming that these all need to be weight-based is such that pushback would be hard to defend.
0: Right. Now, at the moment, do pharma manufacturers really have any incentives to change the way the system is set up?
1: No, our recommendations are not primarily to the drug, the drug industry and the drug developers. They are, they are other stages in the regulatory process. Uh, But no, I think right now, uh, you know, they create a vial, they assign a price to it based on how many patients they think it will treat rather than on how much liquid it contains. And uh, they get reimbursed for that. That determines the charge and they get that money back. And that's that's the way their business works. Obviously, there are many expenses that lead to their decision about what the cost of that vial should be. And it's not simply the production of of the liquid in the vial. Which is why one of the reasons why we are arguing that you know this liquid gold is actually not that valuable, mm-hmm. because why it was the vial is so expensive is due to many other factors: the research costs, the profit margins, the distribution, the storage. Uh, all those issues become important parts of the overall cost.
0: Right. Um, now, one of the potential ways that you guys brought up to address the situation is vial sharing. This is something that we saw and we've seen being used with coronavirus vaccines right now, where we have multiple doses in a single vial, and then, you know, they're pulled out as needed. And you pointed out that this can really have a big impact on reducing waste. I'm wondering why is this practice not more widespread at the moment with other drug products? You know, we try
1: very hard to get a good answer to that question: of why all of these are. In, I mean, frankly, the way to first think about this is simply: why are we using single-dose vials rather than multi-dose vials? Mm-hmm. The vaccines, you know, the coronavirus vaccines that have been given currently are in multi-dose vials, and it's gotten quite a bit of attention in the press uh, that when extra doses were found in some of the vials, as you will mm-hmm. recall, for example. But It is well accepted that the moment you you pierce the top of a vial with a needle, the contents are no longer sterile, unless you've done something to the contents, for example, adding an antimicrobial or some kind of agent that would in fact keep it safe. There are other factors that we've heard about in the case of the multi-dose vials for COVID-19 as well, uh, vaccines, uh, and those are factors related to how long uh, after it's been removed from refrigeration or freezing, uh, it can still be potent and, and maintain its utility. So there, it's not just a matter of, of sticking a needle in it that causes the problem. So we believe that there needs to be a lot more consideration for all these agents, whether things can be done with the vials to allow them to be made into multi-dose vials. Therefore, you actually get larger vials and treat more than one patient from it, but this would mean dealing with these issues of sterility and storage and, and the like. And it's not clear that that's been looked at in the most efficient manner so far. And there's, again, no clear evidence that everyone has tried to do a multidose vial for these medications, and that rather the single-dose assumption is, is uh, part of the culture almost.
0: Hmm. I mean, doesn't the situation, though, with the coronavirus vaccines really prove that it can be done?
1: Well, yes. I mean, the question is, is there something about these medications, these very expensive medications? It means you can't add some kind of antimicrobial or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get good answers to that question. But if you could, uh, then obviously there would be advantages to, for the reasons we've been discussing, of, of delivering in multi-dose vials as well especially for these weight-based medications. you we wouldn't know how many patients would be treated from a vial, but at least you'd be able to try to utilize everything in there.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, to be fair, the situation with the coronavirus and the vaccines is obviously unprecedented. And so, you know, the industry has been really motivated to get as many doses out as quickly as possible. Um, so I'd imagine that that the situation has incentivized the use of these multi-dose vials.
1: I, I actually believe that the, uh, the notion of multi-dose vials is not new at all And they've been for years, the public awareness of the issue of multi-dose vials has certainly gone up because of, you know, especially the, the situation with the Pfizer vaccine where it was supposed to contain five and people were finding it contained six. And uh, an and important thing to point out about that is that uh, subsequently when it became clear that people were getting six rather than five doses out of all these vials. Pfizer made it clear that they were going to charge more for the same vials mm-hmm. because they were being used on six patients rather than five, which goes to our point that really the pricing has to do with how many patients are being treated rather than just the volume inside the file.
0: Okay. Yeah, and I guess what I was getting at is I, when we talked about why this isn't more widespread, and you said this is just we don't really have a great answer for that. I was wondering if it, the, the incentives are just not there right now for. Well, it,
1: maybe it's a little bit like the notion of, of weight-based dosing. It's kind of, we've always done it that way. And we've always put them in single dose vials and we've always used a single dose file and the like. And so we're raising the question of whether we're looking adequately at these, what, you know, what to the public would sound like, you know, uh, arcane issues that are hardly worth worrying about, but they they really are worth worrying about for the reasons that we've been discussing, and they certainly have to do with the overall pricing, and they lead to this notion that there's waste uh, going on. Even though I think that putting a price and economic value on the leftover liquid that's being discarded is extremely difficult, and we've basically said there's really not much point in doing that.
0: I see. Now, you keep bringing up this notion of waste as if you're questioning the idea of waste to begin with. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Well, as economic waste. I mean, it's clearly you're throwing out some liquid that somebody produced, so there's that kind of waste. uh, And and it leads to the notion of why are we doing that? And and we make recommendations for why we might be able to do less of that Mm -hmm. uh, or how we might be able to do less of that. But the the notion that this is worth a lot of money, Mm -hmm. That liquid itself, that's where we talked to uh, economists at length, looked at how drug pricing is done to the extent that you can determine that. It's, a, it's not exactly an open topic uh, where you can get a lot of detail. But our conclusion was that this is really not money that can be recouped for that liquid that's left in those vials. And we really need to be looking at the overall system that produces vials the way that they are, you know, along the lines of what we've been discussing. What we didn't discuss is for those um, those drugs that cannot be in some way made safe to be in large multi-dose vials like these vaccines can. Are there technologies that would allow us still to use the leftover in in the vial for another patient in a single dose vial? In other words, make it more than a single dose vial simply by adequately protecting it. And there there are in organizations that have. Lots and lots of patients, and therefore, a real good chance of efficiently being able to utilize, uh, you know, within the time frame that's safe, uh, the remainder of the drug on another patient. And the technologies allow those who are actually dispensing the drugs to patients to do so in a way that does not involve breaking the sterility of the vial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way, uh, allows uh, uh, allows the drug to be used on a second patient, but the reality right now is that those are very uh, those are unique practices uh, practice settings where large numbers of patients are being treated for the same disease, and where they can even schedule patients with the same same problem to come in more or less on the same day, the same afternoon, and and in that way make very efficient use of the vials that they have purchased. But this is quite rare, and most practices don't have any way of coordinating in order to make that, that kind of safe use of a single-dose file.
0: And at the moment, are there any regulations currently addressing this, attempting to eliminate waste and make these kinds of practices more widespread?
1: Well, there, there has been a lot of interest in the Congress about this issue, because as I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, it looks like a lot of money is being wasted. And that assumption uh, is based on the notion that, for example, if uh, you only use three quarters of a vial and the vial costs uh, $1,000, then the one quarter that you discard is worth $250. And if you multiply that over all the vials and try to get an estimate of just exactly how much is being thrown out, we come up with estimates in the billions of dollars a year for Medicare or CMS. Uh, And therefore, Congress is saying, we have to figure out how to get that money back. Uh, That has led to uh, draft legislation that actually looks at the issue of asking for rebates and documenting the amount of of what's in the vial uh, that is uh, actually administered to patients and what portion is left over and discarded. Uh, it It was this awareness of large amounts of money that might be saved that led Congress to ask CMS to do this study uh, with the national academies. Now, a few years ago, in an effort to try to quantify uh, the uh, amount of discarded medication, CMS introduced a special billing code called the JW Modifier, which could be used by those who were reporting on the administration of drugs and getting reimbursed for the administration of these medications. And the JW modifier allowed them not only to say that there had been some leftover, but also exactly how much leftover there was. Uh, This is supposedly required by CMS, but uh, it turns out that the compliance with the use of of the JW modifier is uh, extremely poor. We have an entire chapter in our report looking at just how often people actually use it. And one of the reasons they're not highly motivated to use it is they're going to get reimbursed for for the cost of the full vial regardless of whether they use the JW modifier. Um, So uh, there are, you can imagine the overhead that goes into asking people to submit the JW modifier and deal with it at the receiving end uh, and the like. So there's costs right now associated with even trying to measure that amount. And uh, for reasons that I think I've already described, we believe that you really can't assign an economic value to that. Uh, if you tried to claw back that money, uh, recoup it through uh, through rebates from manufacturers, that to them would look like a drop in their profit margins for what they believe they've priced for a patient. And uh, much as Pfizer increased the amount uh, that it charged for the COVID vaccine when it found that it, everybody was getting six patients treated rather than five, uh, we believe that there would just be a kind of reset to pricing, and that there would be very little actual savings.
0: Yeah. So, I, I did note in the report you guys did not um, support the idea of rebates because of these consequences. Tell me about some of the solutions that you found, though, that you do think are good ideas.
1: Well. Uh... There are, there are several things that we recommended. In fact, our primary recommendation was we don't think there's economic value here and that therefore we really uh, ought to encourage all these agencies to be looking at how to increase the overall efficiency and question some of the assumptions maybe that have led to this problem seeming to be a, a significant concern and expense. But then there are eight detailed recommendations uh, about how, how maybe to do that. And they're broken into two categories. There's a set that have to do with just promoting efficient and effective use of infused or injectable uh, drugs, uh, which may or may not be in single-dose vials for reasons we've already discussed. Maybe they don't all have to be in single-dose vials. And the second is uh, to look carefully at the reimbursement system for the clinician administration of infused or injected drugs. How do people get reimbursed? We talked about using multi-dose vials whenever possible, trying to come up with technologies that allow us to share the single-dose vials, asking FDA to uh, actually intervene to require that that drugs, at least the drug developers, at least demonstrate that weight-based dosing or body surface area-based dosing is, is necessary for safe and effective uh, treatment of the indication for which they are seeking uh, an approval for the agent. Uh, and the, the technologies become an interesting additional issue, which we think can, could be pressed for by the agencies that see the advantages in uh, being able to the extent that they need to use single dose vials and weight based dosing is how to make that more shareable in a way that's still safe and effective.
0: Can you tell me about technologies that could be implemented to make shared vials more safe and effective? These, these have to
1: do with ways of actually taking the contents of vials in a totally sterile way mm-hmm. into machines that then dispense in a, in, a, in a fashion that does not require sticking a needle through the top of a vial. And they have been used in other countries, and there are a few experiments uh, in this country that we uh, heard a bit about. Uh, we did look at the international situation, which, of course, is quite different, especially on the reimbursement side in other countries because of differences in health systems around the world. But one of the things that was particularly intriguing was some of these ways of getting absolutely the most out of every vial Mm -hmm. by using technologies that keep you from having to throw out too much. So what kinds of technologies? How does it work? Well, we didn't actually see the devices. We we heard them described, but they were, as I I suggested, uh, ways of combining individual vials and safely combining the contents of individual vials so that you can essentially take the right-sized aliquot without adversely affecting the sterility of the remaining liquid.
0: Okay, so for pharma manufacturers who are watching this issue and they're wondering what kinds of new regulations might end up coming down the pipes as a result of your work, um, they'd be looking for, you know, potentially, like we talked about, the FDA adding um, or asking them to look at standard dosing um, in some of the early drug development as well as potentially pushing, the FDA could kind of push for the use of these different technologies for vials that allow and the, patients and to the, get more
1: out. The manufacturers may find themselves doing more multi-dose vial rather than single-dose vial production. And perhaps as part of the production process, adding antimicrobials or other uh, methods for allowing the agents that right now are not receiving that kind of component to be transferred into multi-dose vials instead so that they can be shared. One vial can be shared across many patients without the fancy technologies that that might be necessary for those where antimicrobials can't be inserted for some reason.
0: Right. Now, you've completed your report and you've handed it off. Now, what's next for this issue?
1: Well, uh, whenever the National Academy's makes recommendations. We do everything we can to try to make sure that the people that we're encouraging to act upon them, hear about them, and answer questions they may have, and try to be as persuasive as we can about the the value of the advice that we're offering. So now it really has to do with, uh, I mean, we've done briefings for Congress already on both the House and Senate sides in those committees where uh, the staff are very interested in this issue. And maybe we're involved. For example, in the model legislation, draft legislation that I've been mentioning, uh, and this kind of flies in the face of some of their recommendations mm-hmm. um, of, uh, or their, their assumptions, uh, but we're hoping that, uh, that they, the report is in itself persuasive that there are other ways to address this besides, for example, rebates.
0: Right. And are you sensing a lot of motivation right now among lawmakers to do something concrete here?
1: I think it's too early to tell the report's only been out a couple of weeks. thing was we were able to, certainly to get enough interest that they participated in briefings that we offered, uh, and uh, several people uh, asked for follow-up information and the like. so uh, it's it's on their radar screen and and we hope uh, that it will begin to influence uh, policy and maybe future legislation. Uh, but not just in Congress. it's it's uh, some of this is FDA regulatory advice. Uh, some of it is. Uh, uh, CDC, we found some conflict between recommendations that were co- uh, guidelines that came out of FDA and C- CDC on the same issues. We encourage them to kind of uh, bring their perspectives together and, and be uh, more consistent. Uh, and that's the kind of thing we hope that they will uh, agree that they ought to do.
0: Yeah, well, we'll be following it closely to see if they keep the ball rolling. Anything else really important, uh, especially in terms of the impact for the pharma industry, that we have not discussed?
1: Yeah, I, I I don't think that the pharma industry was identified in any way as being the source of this problem per se, mm-hmm. uh, except perhaps in those early stages of drug development where we need to be much more open to the possibility of uh, fixed dosing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, much of the rest of this really has to do with reimbursement regulation and proper fixing value to uh, what's in a vial, those mm-hmm. kinds of questions, and most of that is... Uh, it's tied to uh, drug pricing and the, there's another Academy report that's about two years old, that they dealt with how we might try to address problems with uh, rapidly increasing costs of pharmacologics in the U.S. healthcare system. But, uh, and although we pointed to that report, that's not the explicit set of recommendations we were making in this one.
0: Well, if the situation from an industry point of view is that this is rooted in culture, it seems like that might even be harder to change than <laughs> getting lawmakers to pass new legislation. Culture culture changes are always tough.
1: Well, that's why I think this becomes a regulatory issue. I mean, mm-hmm. culture still does need to respond to to the requirements. Everybody wants to get their medication approved by the FDA. and The FDA says, show me the data that you need to do this weight-based. Uh, we think they'll do it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to explain this to me. We really appreciate your insights.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to Off Script. Stay safe, everyone, and be well.